if you take up more of the pie doing one thing, you're reducing the amount of, of time left you have for other things. Helping dental students become great dentists. That's Dental Head Start's mantra and that's really important to me. That's why we started this entire thing. But that's also really important to our guests. Dr. Rowan Christen has been a part of the recent graduate committee of the ADA for years and he's recently changed over to a board director for ADA New South Wales. He's a member of the advocacy committee. He's also on the board for Filling the Gap, which is a charity. He finds time to own and work within his own private practice. He's also a father, um, a family man, but something that really piqued my interest is that he's making a course for UCIT graduates. Students at the University of Sydney are now going to get training in what they can do to be better dentists when they graduate. Learning about private practice, learning about all the things that you need to know that you don't normally get taught in dentistry. What he's trying to do is lay out a framework to allow people to search and find the right answers. And in the end, that's the same goal that I have. So I'm really happy and excited to share this conversation with you guys. I really think Rowan's someone you should listen to, hear from and learn from. Don't forget to hang around at the end of this conversation. We've got the Prime Head Start segment and this time with Philip Palmer, someone you know well. We're talking about the future after COVID-19. Very topical, obviously, very important things to hear. And if you want to hear more on this whole topic, our last podcast with Dr. Philip Palmer, Dr. Jamie Workman and Brett Chernan, we spent a whole podcast talking about COVID-19 and the future of dentistry and tips and things that people can be thinking about to hopefully come out of this as good as possible. For now, let's get stuck into the chat with Dr. Rowan Christen. I've been a dental protection member since graduation and I'm so thankful I can partner with them and have their support with Dental Head Start. They've proven their value to me, but what really matters to me is they offer much more than just indemnity. Members receive a range of benefits including Dental Protection's online e-learning platform called PRISM. They produce regular webinars and blogs on information you need to know as an early stage dentist and they have unparalleled support from experienced dental legal consultants including Annaline Weston who has been on the podcast. Their support for dentists has been shown even more in this challenging time and they're generous enough to offer current members three months free membership when renewing from July 1. I think that really sums up that they're here walking with us. And excitingly, Dental Protection has also launched their new podcast called Risk Bites, a short podcast hosted by Dr. Annaline Weston and the team of Dental Legal Consultants about specific topics to keep you up to date on all things medico-legal. Thank you, Dental Protection, for supporting dental students and graduates, and thank you for supporting the Dental Head Start podcast. Dr. Rowan Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, David. Really good to be here. It's my pleasure to have you. And when we were speaking off air um, about um, basically what we've got in common, I got really excited about this chat. Um, You know, you've been in the recent graduate space for a long time. You've been uh, heavily involved with ADA New South Wales, um, University of Sydney now teaching students about getting into private practice. And I think we have very similar goals and that is helping students make that transition in the early years. What's, what's driving you to help students and graduates? I've always got a really great buzz out of helping others and educating others specifically. So I've, I come from a family, my mum has four sisters and they're almost all of them to a T have done some form of education, teaching um, or otherwise, and my grandfather was a teacher as well. So I think it runs in the blood, yeah. <laughs> if you can say that. I've, uh, I mean, I've really been influenced by people around me and I think education is one of the real big 
industries where we can we can give back to others who um, and share one of the most important things as human beings that we have, which is our knowledge. And I think that's even that extends to with my patients as well. I think I, I try and adopt an approach with my patients where I can try and educate them as as best as I possibly can as to their oral health and try and help them achieve their objectives as well. Yeah, there's something special about teaching it. it one, I guess it reinforces our understanding, but it also it it does give you a special joy, and I think that's that's fantastic. So you've got a lot of teaching in your family. Was dentistry always for you? Was that always the plan? Look, I, I actually looked at the medical field as a whole and um, looking at, it, at the medical field as a whole, I uh, pretty quickly realised that I wanted to do something that would give me a lifestyle but also, and you've heard this a million times, but you've got to make it happen. I've realised as well the lifestyle just doesn't come. Um, you, you've got to make that lifestyle happen for you. But I wanted a lifestyle but I also wanted something where I could feel that I could have a wholesome um, A to Z complete experience of fixing a patient's problem and having that tangibility is really, really quite um, unique to dentistry and surgical operative procedures. I think the unique thing with dentistry compared compared to surgical aspects um, in, in the medical profession is that you get to continue, you get to continue to see a patient from a young age um, and 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 see their development and growth and and help really build your um, relationships with them um, and their families and I and I think that is something that you get in very few professions. Dentistry is one where we're privileged to have that. And I think the other thing I've realised in this kind of COVID era, and I know we'll touch on that a little later, is this in in this COVID era is the importance of relationships to humanity and society and how much of an importance we actually place on relationships as what makes um, life meaningful. So I think in answer to your question, um, relationships are a massive, massive part of what makes dentistry, I suppose, in in, in my mind, and an operative pr- um, procedural discipline where you can get a complete tangible result, have a patient with a problem, send them out with the problem fixed, and still have that um, relationship building that you get, which is it's very unique to dentistry. And I think I'm lucky that dentistry found me in that sense um, and I was able to realize the, the full value of it. I, I, that actually resonates a lot with me. I And people have probably heard me say this before. I was a dental assistant before a dentist and I worked for a general dentist for many, many years through uh, school and um, university. But then I also worked for some specialists. And what I really noticed was that you could have this continuous relationship with your patients as a general dental provider, um, practitioner, and as a specialist, it was a little bit more challenging. I worked with a maxillofacial surgeon. We, he, he saw them once when they were awake, <laughs> pretty much, um, and so and built a relationship. But then it wasn't ongoing. Uh, this is a bit off tangent, but Ryan, would you ever specialize? I, I thought about it for a long time, um, and then I had two kids. <laughs> <laughs> I fully understand that yeah. as well. I've got one, but yeah, yeah. I, okay. I, I think I found a happy middle ground. I'm not sure if I did mention to you. I'm, I am doing a master's at the moment. So that's a master's um, in medicine specialising in orofacial pain management um, and that's with the University of Sydney. So I'm in this unique position where I'm a University of Sydney student and a University of Sydney um, lecturer. Uh, and when I went to actually process my application for the master's in, in, the, in, master's in medicine, um, 
Yeah, funny story. I actually got rejected from the initial process because they sort of said, well, hold on, you've got two accounts here. What's going on? And I actually had to actually had to call the student center and say, hey, look, I'm a student, but I'm also a clinical associate lecturer. So I've got the two hats on. So can you please uh, consolidate the two accounts and, and, and make them one? So that was kind of funny because I don't know if they've come across that very often, but it, it comes to the, comes back to this idea of education. It is a continuous spectrum for me. Like lifelong learning is so paramount. And I think if we are able to, if we're telling our patients that we need to try and educate them, we're telling our students that we're trying to educate them and we're trying to be better clinicians, we're all learning. And if we just keep applying that trade and, and, and continuing that process of, of education, both internally but also espousing that externally then i think we have a better profession and we um we're better clinicians ourselves yeah that's fantastic that's actually very inspiring there's a bunch of things that we're going to cover that you just mentioned one of them is i don't know how you find the time for all this we might get into that um a little bit later but um You've talked a lot about knowledge and learning. Is this something that's have you always been a you know passionate learner? Were you always, you know, quite a good student when you were younger? Or is this something you found later on, perhaps at university, perhaps later? I think um, I was lucky that the school I went to really inculcated uh, the importance of learning as a passion, not learning for the sake of uh, a means to an end. And I'm very, very fortunate to have gone to a school that really um, that was their MO um, and, and, and because I became passionate about learning, I think I, I suppose I was, a, I was a better student than I would have been if I didn't have that same passion. Um, that's, that's great. I, I didn't get that from my school. I actually learned that from a dentist, um, the dentist I first worked for. So it was very influential for me as well and, and it's something now, you know, that's the gift. If you can give someone a passion for learning, that's the best thing you can do. Do you remember your um, Do you remember your first patient in university or first patient <sighs> after graduation? I, I vividly remember my first patient in um, the student clinics, and the reason that I remember that is because it was one of my mates. Um, and um, I don't know; many people don't, may not know this, but at the University of Sydney, we they might have sort of stopped this now, but we used to give injections to each other mm. to start off, um, and there's a um, a dentist, Canadian dentist, who shall not be named, but he knows who he is. Um, and he was actually a brown um, ice hockey uh, player at, at, at university before he came here. So, but he's a very humble guy, and he sat there in the chair while my shaky hand tried to find his find uh, its way towards his mouth. Um, and I think a lot of dental students can empathise or sort of relate to that because. When you first give an injection, your hands are everywhere. You, you can't even keep your hands still. At least I couldn't. And it, I suppose that was my first patient experience that I vividly remember. I remember mine and it's exactly the same. I was a said graduate before. They, they did stop that, um, unfortunately. I think it's a really... <laughs> No, I think it's a really important empathy builder because we need to understand the feeling Um, and if you've never had a block, I think you should. But at the same time, I remember the student, he probably remembers me, same thing, shaky hands. (laughs) How was was uni for you? You you did well, you did honours. How how did you find it and then how did you find graduation? I I actually found university, um, my undergraduate degree in medical science was, was fine. Um, I think the competition for getting into veterinary science, dentistry and medicine was the one thing that was difficult about that, that everyone was trying to find the next career to sort of step into. 
So that was the challenging part of that. But I think everyone found that there was a light at the end of the tunnel and so they, they sort of persevered. Dentistry was tough because the way that the dental program was set up when it was a Bachelor of Dentistry before it became a Doctor of Dental Medicine was that the dentistry students would sit with the medical students and sit their barrier exams, sit their, sit on their lec- in, in on their lectures and would actually do all the medical lectures and all the medical tutorials that the medical students would do whilst learning dental radiology, dental anesthetics, dental pharmacology and prescribing, head and neck anatomy, um, clinical dentistry, operative dentistry, um, you know, you name it. <laughs> you're, you're giving me flashbacks right now. I didn't have quite, like it was a little different for me, but at the same time, oh. <laughs> Yeah, and, 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 and I can honestly tell you that initially I thought it was one of those you know those glorified sporting moments where you go back and it gets bigger and better every time you, you relive <laughs> it. Initially, I thought it was that, but then when I spoke to dental students that um, went through after me, they were living that same experience, and it was, I think, in in some ways, it's still easier resolve and and allows you to conquer bigger and better things because you know that if you get through that dental degree, you've got through the, in my opinion, the toughest degree that you can go through because everyone thinks about the medical degree as being the toughest degree you can get through, but Try doing that while you're doing dentistry at the same time. Good luck. Um, and and if, you, if you can get through that, you can get through anything. And so I think my experience of dentistry, whilst it was, it was, an, it was an arduous journey, I think the best thing I had was um, friendships that I developed, which I'll have for the rest of my life with um, probably the closest group of guys and a couple of girls as well that um, I'm still to this day, you know, grateful that we went through that together. But We've come out of it as better humans and, and good friends after it, lifelong friends. Um, uh, we, we have a lot of similarities. That's exactly how I feel about the dental degree and, and the group of friends that I have. We actually just did a Zoom catch-up. It took us a global shutdown to figure out that we could actually catch up in Canada and other countries all at the same time. <laughs> um, and, and, and the one thing I will say with that, David, um, is that the fact that we were able to get through that was because of the relationships that we built and the friendships that we built and the friendships that you, the network you build outside when you finish dental school, when you don't have those friends with you, are your, um, it's so important to think about what you need to get through your arduous life outside of university when you become a dentist. And that is ensuring that you have a support network that is equivalent to a good group of friends. And for me, that has been, the Australian Dental Association, federal and state branches, yep. um, a really good practice that you're a part of when you have a supportive principal or supportive staff and associates, um, really good um, sort of university like alumni networks that you can that you can sort of lean on. Um, great networks like things that you're developing right now, where you can have people that are connecting across e platforms or podcasts. Um, you just got to use every single. Uh, part of the dental profession in whatever way you can to make it your friend and, and and make it work for you. And I think when you're going through a difficult process or a difficult journey, like we all do in our careers, you need as many friends as you can have and as many support networks as you can have. And I've tried to utilize that in my career as much as I possibly can. And it's so far, it's, it's um, reaped dividends for me. 
That's really, really good advice. It's the same thing. We got through dental school because of our friends and then we can easily isolate ourselves as we go out into private practice and I, I, that, that resonates a lot as well and I think that's really fantastic advice. How, how was your first few years? Did you, um, have you been in the one practice since or have you moved around? I worked at two practices. One was um, in, uh, on the northern beaches in Sydney and the other practice was on the central coast as an associate and then after I think it would have been six years, I purchased uh, my first practice um, in the North Shore of Sydney uh, and, um, yeah, it was. I think it was a, a kind of a surreal experience, the whole thing, because the, the practices that I worked at as an associate, I got really good diversity in terms of experience but also working with different practitioners. And I think that's a really good pointer for um, any students that are then transitioning into the workforce is ensuring that you get a diversity of experience, a range of experiences to color your, um, your palette in a way that will allow you to be a, a well-rounded practitioner. And I don't just mean in t- doing surgical extractions or doing cosmetic work. I don't mean range of just specifically the range of treatment options. I mean working with different demographics, working with different socioeconomic, in different socioeconomic areas working in different types of practices, whether they're health fund mediated or completely independent, um, working in big group practices and small practices, working in a regional area or a metropolitan area. So these are all things that you're not going to necessarily be able to get every single experience, but if you can offer yourself a few experiences before you decide either where you're going to settle down as an associate, where you're going to, what area in dentistry you're going to specialize in or what practice you're going to purchase, I think if you can have a diversity of experiences, then you can make a better decision. And to that end, you can also use others around you to help inform your, your opinion so you can make a considered, uh, considered um, decision um, rather than one that's just made on the best thing that's available at the time. So you'd suggest people go for two or three part-time jobs when they graduate? I think that the reality of the situation is that people are going for two to three jobs yeah. as soon as they graduate. If you can find a job that will allow you, you know, four days of work or five days of work, you know, take it with both hands because they're rare. But even then I would still say you need to supplement that then with um, a knowledge of what else exists in the industry so you can make a considered decision. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned before, you know, you've had a really good support network in that w- the stuff that you've done. You've done a lot. You're doing ADA a lot with the ADA, and we'll get right into that a lot with you, Sid. Now, um, tell us about your mentors early on. You had a couple of different practices. Did you have good mentors within the practice practices, or did you have to reach out and find them? No, I had good mentors within the practice. Yeah. Both practices that I worked at, I had good mentors, um, but I also had really good mentors outside of it, and I think. That's, again, important to find um, a, a sort of a variety of experiences there that come through a variety of pers- personalities. And, um, you know, if you dentistry is one of those professions, I think, that if you limit yourself to one personality or one particular type of person, then you'll get uh, – you won't get a um, – you won't you won't get a full world view of what exists in the profession. You'll get one person's opinion. And we're taught from a, a very young age in um, at university that peer-reviewed journals and 
um, sort of evidence that exists that considers the most amount of, um, I suppose, material that's available is is the best in, in, in ensuring that biases are eliminated. So I'm big on eliminating biases and I think that if you can, if you can find um, multiple practitioners, multiple mentors, um, then biases that those um, mentors may have had or those clinicians may have had that have coloured their experience won't necessarily translate into you doing exactly what they think that you should do, but uh, sort of cherry picking a lot of their experiences and their and their advice to create advice that's tailored to you and that sit, that suits your circumstances and your um, practicing persona. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. I guess it goes back to that old saying: you ask ten dentists um, about a treatment plan, you get ten different answers. So if you have one mentor, you're getting that one treatment plan idea. And our first job shapes us so much. How do you suggest a graduate finds the mentor? If say they need to look outside of their practice um, and they've got a job that they want to keep, how do they go about finding um, their mentor? Um, I think the I've said this to students before and I'll say it again. The the single biggest important decision that you make when it comes to securing employment is the decision of who is going to be your mentor. And your biggest mentor at that point in time is the person that you're most likely practicing under or with. Um, so if you've got uh, considerations with regards to where you want to work, what type of practice you want to work in, um, you know, what the remuneration is going to be. These are all considerations. But the biggest consideration for me is, and the most important consideration, is finding a mentor that is compatible with your ideological, ethical um, practice principles. And so that, that would be my first bit of advice is make sure that when you get a secure employment um, that you are doing so with the first priority being making sure that that mentor is compatible with you. And when I say, compa- when I say compatible, I mean it, it's got to, they've got to pretty much fit the mark. You're almost entering into a, um, a relationship, or, you know, sort of um, long-term relationship hopefully. And yeah. Coming back to general dentistry and what we were talking about before, the biggest equ- sort of the equity that you're building in your practice, and I know I'm probably digressing here, but the equity that you're building in your practice books um, is is going to potentially sustain you for the rest of your life. So, where if you can find that golden egg first crack, then you're going to you know reap the rewards from that for the rest of your practicing career, because all the equity that you build in your patient base, all the patients, the connections, the the the, the immersion into the community that you invest in, you're going to exponentially reap the rewards from that. So, if you then up and leave after four years because you don't like your mentor. Or your principal, then you've all of that. I'm not saying that that hard work is, has gone down the drain, but it could have been invested better elsewhere. So think about yourself as being valuable, and think about investing yourself in a way that would be amenable to um, reaping the most rewards from yourself, and then you'll have success. Yeah, I really like that, and I think that that's really, really um, true. You, you. The more time you spend in a practice, the the more busy you get with your patients. Like you build a list. I've been in mine for three years. Um, I've only been out three and a half years, and and that's really made a significant difference. Um, often it's hard to know until you've actually started the job. You know what your 
mentor boss is it really like do you have any advice on how people can kind of find out a bit more before and do you have any advice if someone's in a position where they maybe aren't as happy as they should be <laughs> that's a great that's a that's a really really good one i wish if we could all have crystal balls yeah exactly and we could figure out those things i think some of us are better at um, some of us have got that nous to be able to figure out personalities and that emotional quotient or that depth of um, analytical analytical ability. I wish um, I had it in spades. I, I'd like to think I, I have a little bit, but um, it, it, that's a really rare thing to be able to have that. And then you've got to have a little bit of luck that the person that you're meeting is presenting you with their truest self, which doesn't always happen. The, the thing with dentistry is that it's a very small world. So if you are able to do a little bit of, a, uh, of I wouldn't say um, – kind of investigative work but a little bit of just ask a few people what this person's like and do you know them if you ask enough people you'll get a pretty true reflection of who that person is what that person's all about and um, you'll be able to make a good decision on that basis that's i guess there's not a lot else you can do but that that's the one thing that helped me actually and i think i recommend that to everyone you know just ask ask around people people tend to know Uh, so you've gone down this path um, from an associate. Now you're a practice owner. Tell us a bit about that journey. I think I always wanted to um, be involved in practice ownership. I think the autonomy that it brings, as well as the ability to sort of um, have a, a sort of a blank slate or a or a can blank canvas and, and paint whatever you want with it and have your own creation. They're all things that are really desirable. The one thing is that I think I walked into that a little bit naive because when you do purchase a practice, there's already a, a painting that exists there and to sort of rip it up and start again is fraught with with danger and you, and you have to be really cognizant of that, um, ensuring that you buy a, into a practice that already has the picture that you'd like to paint or somewhat close to what you'd like to paint is probably the best advice I can give someone because if you find something that's pretty close to the mark, then you can adapt it very easily to make it yours which is wonderful in a way it, it's creative it's it gives you all those little little buzz factors that you sort of a little um little small victories that you'd like to have and and um the simple pleasures of owning a practice and creating something for the future is 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 all wonderful but the autonomy that it brings as well and, and they're the two things the thing that people don't like to talk about is money and um i really don't like the fact that people haven't liked to talk about money, I, I do like to, to, to be as candid as possible. And I think it's important because when you chart your lifestyle and what you want your life to be, a big factor of that is what your affordability is going to be. And, and um, there's, there's no doubt that practice ownership gives you the potential. I'll be careful with my words here. Practice ownership gives you the potential to, have, um, uh, to increase your remuneration and increase your ability to then make further investments and and and, um, and procure um, a life and a lifestyle that you want. Yeah. Um, you're not really answerable to anyone but yourself, but you are answerable to yourself. And that was the other thing that I found that, um, you know, I thought that it would be com- a completely uh, a, a journey where I wouldn't have to really be answerable to anyone, but you are constantly answerable to yourself. And what I mean by that is that if you decide to take a six-week holiday somewhere, then your practice um, gross suffers by that six weeks. So it's 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 a it's a direct um, sort of input equals output scenario, just like you are when you're an associate dentist, except that you don't have the fixed cost to pay. So 
when you're an associate dentist, you can really just, uh, I suppose, go on a holiday, do other things that you might want to do, sit your primaries, take weeks off for that, take more time off for study. Um, but the reality of the situation is you don't have to pay for that dental assistant. You don't have to pay rent or mortgages for that practice. You don't have to pay all those fixed costs that you do. Um, someone once told me a very interesting way of looking at it, which is that if you don't work or don't have the practice running and you own the practice, you're losing money. Whereas if you're an associate and you um, don't work, you're just the opportunity cost of lost income is all that you're incurring as a loss. That's a, that's a very big differential. So whilst the rewards are there that are magnified, the losses are also magnified. And so you have to be ready to take that on. You talked, um, yeah, it's a really, really good point. Um, bit about the money side and I don't want you to say any specific numbers but I would like to get a bit more of an idea around perhaps the percentages or any way you can paint that picture because I think a lot of students and graduates have absolutely no idea what it costs to get into business, what the material risks are if things don't go right, if um, what the differential between an associate's potential income and perhaps a, a good business owner compared to perhaps a not so great practice owner uh, might earn. Can you give a bit of light on some of that? <laughs> That's like a six-hour lecture, David. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We've got time. Go for it. <laughs> look, um, okay, so let's let's break it down. So in terms of what uh, an associate, when I was an associate, I think the biggest thing I wanted to know, the simplest question I wanted to know is, was I going to earn more money if I bought a practice? That's what everyone wants to know, yep. right? And the answer is a turtle, you know, like it's a, it's a unicorn. Like it's just, I can't give you an answer about um, what, you know, whether you can or you can't. But what I can tell you is that the opportunity in business is that you are able to multiply your income by having economies of scale work for you. So what I mean by that is that you can have multiple practitioners working in a practice um, multiple practitioners working in a practice with the same fixed costs, which you can't do by yourself because you only have two hands. And you can only work for you know you're only working as your own, um, as your own self. So if if you're working um, as an associate, the best way of increasing your your remuneration, other than very good negotiation tactics, um, which in this market's probably not going to fly anyway, but the best way of looking at that is to keep upskilling yourself so that if you're continually upskilled then you can increase your remuneration or get busier by increasing patient retention and all of this comes down to putting the patient first if you can put the patient first and do to them as you would do to yourself and give them the best possible patient experience then you're going to um, increase patient patient retention and then as far as the procedures that's just whatever walks through the door in my opinion um, I like to practice, and I think most of us like to practice dentistry ethically, and that means that you would treat the same person, um, it's ten different people, the same way, depending, you know, completely the same way in terms of what treatment plan you would give them, no matter the circumstance. Um, and, and I think that's not only is that idealistic, that is something that I would say is an essential. You you must do that. But if you're if you've got a bigger repertoire of skills that you can offer, then you can keep you can do more of the procedures that you would like to do again there's a, there's an ethical part of that which is that can you do all the procedures that you know you think 
you should be able to do for, to the best of your ability? And the answer, probably, the answer to that is probably no. But definitely the more skills you have, the remuneration potential is there. That's for an associate. But in a practice setup, if you can find a practice where the associates are going to stay and the auxiliary staff, whether it be therapists, hygienists, whether it be um, some practices that um, you know uh, have dietitians or, or other allied um, medical practitioners that work within the uh, a medical practice or 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 a, or a surgery um, or specialists, you can harness their collective energy, their collective repertoire, and enhance your um, the the that the value of what you're producing but also enhance the level or proficiency to which that is being performed by ensuring that different people are um, sort of sub-specializing or you might even have specialists that perform that duty. So what I'm trying to say is that in a practice you've, that you own, you have a lot more um, uh, autonomy over how things are done, why they're done, when they're done, um, but that comes with managing people and personalities, which is another challenge. That you so with practice ownership, there are more challenges. There are um, higher ups, but there are also lower down. So you've got to choose your case carefully. Find a practice that is um, where the the find a practice that um, matches your um, ability. So if you're a, a dentist who likes doing a lot of um, cosmetic work, um, you know, composite work or um, reconstructive work, you shouldn't buy a practice that 30% of the gross comes from doing oral surgery. Mm-hmm. Or if you're going to, you better have a, a husband or a wife or a, or a best friend who's an oral surgeon <laughs> because yeah, yeah. It's, otherwise you, you, you're really, you know, up the creek. Um, and and um, it, especially when you're buying into a practice like this, you're really taking on a lot of debt that is dependent on you matching the gross income of what the practice was, um, was performing at before. So you, you, it's, it needs to be a really careful um, choice that you make when you decide to buy a practice. And then obviously the, answer, the question is, what do you then buy the practice for? And, and, and these are all, like I said, it, it is, it, there are a myriad of answers, a myriad of questions that you need to sort of go through before you get to this process. Um, Was it the right decision for you? 100%. Uh, and and, and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you why. I mean, I live five minutes away from where I practice. Um, I, have, I have wonderful staff who, who, um, and associates whose um, ideologies and ideas about dentistry match mine and we put the patient first the practice that I'm in at the moment if we can't do something to the best of our ability or to the ability that we think would be judged as a great standard in this country then we refer it and what we've got from that is it's a bit of a different way to look at things compared to what some practices would do but what we've got from that is we've built a practice where um, clinical excellence is paramount and where we we spend time to really get to know our patients and and um, pride ourselves on delivering um, a not just a not just dentistry but building relationships that hopefully will last a lifetime. And I think our patients can see that we're genuine and that we do care. And I think from that we're able to build a practice that for the last twenty years it's an interesting one. I've, it's a practice that 
has had six or seven female dentists. I'm the first male dentist to walk in. So when you're talking about matching like for like, I didn't quite follow that. <laughs> so do as, do as I uh, say, not as I do. But it's worked out for me in the end because we've offered an, another, I suppose, type of practitioner, which is a male practitioner into the practice. Um, and they say I'm as, as good as any woman, which is great. <laughs> I'll take that as a massive compliment. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> you're a lucky man. You must be doing something right for sure. One of the things I think about when you talk about this and you passionately talk about private practice and ownership is that you're also uh, heavily involved in ADA. You're also um, doing a course for UCID. You're also doing a master's, which I didn't know about. You've also got two kids. You've also involved with filling the gap. How do you find the time to fit all of this in? That's, I think... One thing I'll say is that I have a fantastically supportive wife and fantastically supportive family, extended family unit. Um, I, I don't think I could have done it without them and having them in my life has made my life easy. I'd love to tell you some tale about how I'm incredibly good at managing my time or how I'm really well organized. I think all of that stuff would just be baloney, <laughs> absolute baloney. Um, I'm just very lucky that I've got a really good supportive um, extended family structure that allows me to do the things that I do. Um, but I think dentistry allows me to do the things that I do too. Like I work three and a half days a week. So I have a little bit more time to do some of the other things that I enjoy um, and and still do the clinical dentistry that I can and optimize myself for my patients. So when I see my patients, I give them my 110%. Every single patient that walks through the door, I give them 110%. And when I come home from work, um, I'm, I'm pretty much spent. Like I, I have nothing left to give from a clinical point of view or a patient's point of view, but my, my wonderful children give me a, 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 a little bit of a pep up and, and spark me to sort of hang out with them for a couple of hours before they go to bed. But I get to hang out with them on Wednesdays and Saturdays and Sundays. So because of, I'm able to have this balance where I'm doing all these different things, I think it actually helps me perform better. And this is something that I worked out at school that when I was playing cricket and I was playing football and I was you know, doing extracurricular activities, I was doing music um, and studying, I was actually able to study better. And I think that that's, that's worked for me. I'm not sure if that will work for everyone. But you're asking me specifically for me, how, do, how am I working my time? An extended family that is incredibly supportive and um, a profession that allows me the liberty to work three and a half days a week and still, still earn a wage. That's probably the secret, I think. I think that's so important and it is important. We sometimes lose track of that, the fact that we can work three days or so and earn an income that's quite good and we can then balance with so many other things, whether that's you know family or, or certain passions or other projects or, or study or anything else. Um, tell us a bit about, I want to say publicly that the ADA has done an exceptional job recently. It's May 14th, uh, 2020. We're in the middle or coming towards the end, hopefully, of um, the COVID-19 shutdown for dentistry and, and they've supported the profession exceptionally well. Um, tell us about your experience with the ADA. My experience with the ADA started out, um, I suppose I got tapped on the shoulder and told, hey, um, I think you should probably join the recent graduate committee and that's where I started out. And then I got tapped on the shoulder and told, hey, 
um, I think you'd make a really good chair for this recent graduate committee. Maybe you should think about doing that. I thought, oh, uh, okay, maybe I'll do it. And then I got tapped on the shoulder and told, hey, I think you'd be a really good person to run for council um, and then a really good person to be on the board of directors. And so I ended up in this position where I didn't really want to be a part of all these sort of organisations, but I continually kept getting tapped on the shoulder and told, hey, mate, get in line because we, 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 need, we need as much help as we can get. And I, um, I suppose I took the opportunity every time a door opened to open another door. And I think the biggest thing I can say about the ADA is they really are, both the federal and state branches are really there for the dental practitioner. They're really there for us, um, but for the profession too. Um, they're not just a union for dentists. They're actually there for the profession and for the public um, and to help dentists be the best versions of themselves that they can be. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of that, especially if you're a dentist? So, uh, I mean, it, it has been chaotic. The last probably six weeks or eight weeks, I reckon we've had board meetings almost two to three times a week. It's hours and hours of, of work as far as just staying, um, you know, having your finger on the pulse talking to people, um, you know, garnering opinion and, um, and gaining support for different issues and um, whether it's talking to the stakeholders or, um, you know, other sort of regulatory bodies or people in the government, you're constantly in conversation with people. You're constantly doing um, work behind closed doors, which a lot of people don't see. Um, and I'm not here to sort of um, talk about the, the ADA and how good it is, but I think it would be remiss of me to not mention it because the last six weeks, I think I can speak on behalf. I can't speak on behalf of myself, but all of my, <clears throat> I can speak on behalf of my colleagues at the ADA at a board and council level, but also um, uh, across other state branches and the federal body as well have been phenomenal in, in, in trying to ensure that we navigate through this COVID-19 saga, um, keeping dentistry um of in the minds of of the public the regulators the government but also ensuring that we um have a professional responsibility that is fulfilled to our patients to ensure that they continue to get dental care Mm. and i think we've we've done that so i I, i'm really pleased with the outcome so far and um i'd urge anyone who um has a little bit of of interest in in the profession as a whole to to try and get involved because we're only stronger if, or at least be members to start with, because we're stronger as a profession if we've got more people um, uniting together for to for that one voice that we do have as at the ADA. Yeah, it's. Um, I think I think dentists um, all around Australia, and I can't speak for them, but I've definitely seen it. It's been an amazing um, effort from the ADA, and I really think everyone is very thankful for what you and everyone else has done um, within the whole whole community. No, I'm I'm, gl- I'm glad we're able to help, and hopefully, hopefully, we can we can continue to 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 do do so as well. Tell us a bit about what the recent graduates um, committee is in what they do and what they're pushing for for recent graduates. So uh, the recent graduate committee at, at ADA New South Wales has been, and, and across at, at um, all the branches actually have a recent graduate committee and we actually have a, a federal recent graduate advisory panel. We sort of t- look at um, your concerns as recent graduates um, and what you think that, you, you know, you're finding difficulties with but what you're also doing really well with and, um, and using that as a platform to then 
um, create change but also um, a, create a support system or a network that would allow for your functioning in the best way you possibly can function. And um, I think that's been effective so far um, in giving recent graduates a platform, which may not have been the case, you know, a decade ago. Mm, mm. It's something, I guess it's easy for us to forget. We've got the ADA there to reach out to and we've got these special committees that are looking out for us as graduates and students. And, um, yeah, I definitely encourage people to get involved. That's fantastic. You, you're also doing a course now for the University of Sydney and this is a course for the students through years one to four to help them get prepared for private practice. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a course called um, the Private Practice um, program at the university of sydney and um what it's basically why i decided to sort of champion it to begin with was that i felt that there was a real blind spot um Mm. in private practice in dentistry where we were educated by the university to be good practicing dentists but we weren't necessarily given the tools to succeed in private practice and when i was speaking to the dean uh about this he mentioned that you know close to 90% of um, University of Sydney students were going on to practice in private practice. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a staggering, staggeringly large percentage of students that are doing that. And if they're doing that and they're not given the guidance or the tools to succeed, we're not fulfilling our responsibility to give them the best education possible. And this is, I, I, to my knowledge, it's the first um, of its kind in, at any university um, that is doing running a program like this. So to begin with, it started off as a little bit of a sort of, I suppose, a, a pilot program. Um, my vision is that it will eventually become part of the curriculum mm. um, and, and help students to um, hit the ground running so that when they do finish university, not that they, ha- that they will have all the tools in their toolkit to be able to succeed at private practice, but that that blind spot would be illuminated sufficiently that they can go and... Um, I suppose find the answer to those um, all the questions that they have about private practice through being um, exposed to the various aspects of private practice during their university studies. I think the graduates. I wish you were doing that when I went through. Um, and it's obviously that's a theme that I very much resonate with. That's why I basically I've started Dental Head Start. I think um, there's a lot we can learn before we graduate to help us to graduate and to succeed in those early years. Can you share a few of the themes, perhaps? Um, you know, I want to get a bit of information for the listeners. There's plenty of people here who are listening who are not students of UCID right now. Um, what are some of the key themes that you're trying to get across for them? Uh, look, the. Most of it has to do with, um, you know, the life of a dental student from, you know, graduation to private practice, you know, what to expect when you do graduate, how to prepare yourself for private practice, what your life could look like personally and professionally, you know, securing yourself a job and and finding opportunities, um, career opportunities, talking about practice ownership, practice acquisition, um, you know, the pitfalls and and I suppose the, the, the real triumphs of that. Um, rural practice, specialization, you know, negotiating a contract, securing your future and making investments, um, being part of a team, like a multifaceted team, um, referring to specialists, um, you know, things, I suppose all of those sort of lessons, but, but also money matters. So, you know, uh, I suppose aligning yourself to a, uh, to a professional life 
um, and a lifestyle and, and using dental labs, using dental software, which is something that we weren't really taught at all, um, discussing bank loans, accountants, lawyers, insurance policies that you need when you graduate, income considerations, um, dentistry is an online business, starting dentistry from the ground up if people are considering that. And then considering dentistry in the in the context of the economics of Australia at that point in time. So, and aligning a business model to be able to to be able to succeed, um, depending on which socioeconomic um, area your practice might be in and what your practice is aligned towards in terms of what sort of procedures that the practice does, um, decreasing cost trends and technology trends and impact on future practices. So there's a whole range of things we go through. That's um, <laughs> that whole list. I reckon. Every student or even graduate right now should just write all them down and then just research every single one of those points. And then if they have any questions, just email Rowan because because <laughs> that's just uh, exactly that's right. They're all those blind spots we don't think about that until we cross that bridge until we find that's that. right. And, and and David, I, I don't I don't profess to um, to have all the answers to that, which is why I have kind of got together my little Avengers team um, yeah. of people who I think can deliver those. Um, I suppose those messages to the students, um, and and like I said, it's it's such an in depth uh, topic. All those topics are so in depth and so detailed that to try to um, deliver that in a in a detailed, uh, consistent, concise way would just be completely just beyond ambitious. So all, all we've decided decided to do is just to illuminate that blind spot, illuminate the blind spot, give students a cogent, succinct narrative that they can follow when they graduate so they can find people like you um ada uh, as well student alumni networks whether they find other networks overseas and just interstate um there's so many different um private companies as well that act to try to find um to get the best out of students after they graduate and so i'm not saying to to close your minds to any of them i'm saying turn your minds to all of them but um because as much if you haven't gathered already, the more information you can gather from from the greatest variety of sources, that will inform your opinion to make the best considered decisions for your career. Yeah, that's so true. And I like you bring up a point where it's like, well, look, I don't know all the answers. I'll bring in other people, and you're someone with you know so much more experience than them now. And I think it's the same for me. I I have no idea about the answers. That's why I started this. I could talk to people like you. But I think all of us need to continue with that attitude of you know growing and getting more information. If we think we know it all, well, we've probably made a big a big mistake. Um, you talk a little bit, or in our pre-chat, we mentioned a bit about. Um, building your patient base as a new graduate, um, as a recent graduate. Is there anything you want to share or some tips maybe about that for students? Um, I think the, the, the biggest thing that you can do with building your patient base is to, like I said before, give every single thing you've got to that patient appointment. I've, I've had some of the most fulfilling relationships um, professional and pers- professionally and personally um, through dentistry um and i think if you look at every patient that you have as an opportunity to build another relationship then i think you'll be successful and i think that's that's tip number one i think tip number two is um making sure that you immerse yourself in the community so the things that i did when i first decided to um, start practicing in private practice is going around to footy clubs going to um, kindergartens or preschools, 
um, being a part of sports teams and 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 sort of musical um, bands and stuff that I was a part of at the time, and, and just trying to really immerse myself into the community, and I, and I think that really pays pays off because not only do you, it, it's a it's a kind of two way street where they um, really feed off your energy and your enthusiasm to make a difference in the community, but then they reciprocate by providing you their business. Um, their loyalty, their patient base, their connections. And it makes for a really fulfilling experience where you really feel like you're someone that when someone's got a toothache, you can throw on the cape and go in and, and rescue them. And um, doesn't, that, doesn't that make you feel good? Yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. But I guess it comes back to you make relationships and whether it's within your community or with just your patient that is in the chair, those relationships grow into other ones. They refer patients, they tell other people. And I don't think it's lame at all to say um, it's just because you care because I think patients can tell. They really can tell. And I think the key to that, more personally, I think a lot of it is is being able to listen and understand and, and hear what the patient's actually saying. Um, that's fantastic advice. With um, some of the things we've said, you know, we've covered a lot of different areas and we had a question actually from Laura on Instagram. She wants to know, what is it that's important about all these things? What is it, What do you get out of not just being a clinician, doing a lot more than just being a clinician? I think it's, I think it's, there are two things that are really important with that for me. Um, one of them is that doing all these things helps me be a better clinician because I'm able to actually use different parts of my brain, um, use different, I suppose, give myself a variety of experiences so that when I do come to focus in on a patient, I'm like, oh, how good is this? We're getting stuck in today and this is what I do um, on a daily basis and I really enjoy it. And, and it makes me appreciate how much I actually love dentistry mm-hmm. when I do things outside of, uh, of clinical dentistry. And I think coming back to your earlier question, practice ownership has afforded me that ability to be able to reduce my working hours and give my patients my best or give my best version of myself every time. I think I found a happy medium by doing things outside of dentistry. It also, it's also really helped me to have my finger on the pulse. So I'm, I'm, Because I'm sort of interacting in so many different circles in dentistry, it's allowed me to always stay on the ball with regards to new developments in the industry, with regards to... Um, technology trends but also with regards to patient um, interactions and, and, and innovations in practice. So all those sort of things um, have been positive for me from a personal and professional point of view just from being able to be involved in so many different circles. Mm. Um, and the final thing I'll say with it is that it's open doors. So sometimes I think we um, pigeonhole, our, pigeonhole ourselves as being just dentists was really, I think, we could be anything we want to be. <clears throat> and um, whether it's, I mean, at the moment, um, I wear three hats specifically, um, lecturer, board director, and, and, and dentist slash private practice owner. But, you know, there's no reason why, um, and I can be naked in my ambitions or be candid with my words about saying that I'd be more than happy to be a, a board director of another company as well and, and, and further the horizons and trying to think about what other boards that you could be a part of from my perspective that I could add value to because I feel like I can add value um, as well as um, further teaching opportunities that I might have down the, the track in my career, just to name a few as examples of what doors could open. 
um, from the result of, as a result of putting yourself out there. So I think by putting yourself out there and by giving yourself every opportunity to learn and grow, you're also giving yourself professional opportunities. Not that that's the end game, but that will will come. And um, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an inevitable part of being involved in more different things or more relationships you make. There's a few things I wanted to, to mention there. I think you may raise a really good point, which you're working five and a half days. You know, you're you're, you're busy. You're putting so much effort and time and and, and mental energy into patients. Um, we're only human, and and you do run out of steam, so to speak. I think burnout's a key word in that kind of situation. You know, whether or not it's that actual thing, but I feel the same way. And it's interesting um, how much. I love dentistry has been highlighted in the fact that I couldn't do dentistry in recent times due to COVID-19 and so we were doing very limited dentistry and not very much patient uh, connection and then we get back to starting to do some stuff and I'm like, wow, the first day or two I was like, wow, this I really I do enjoy this and I think having, you know, taking that step back, maybe working less days or doing other things as well as dentistry can really help you enjoy it more and not get burnout. I think the the idea of um i I think it's a pie as well i I always look like to look at life as a pie that is if you take up more of the pie doing one thing you're reducing the amount of of time left you have for other things and i think that's the biggest if i could inspire people or tell people what i love about dentistry other than the physical um ability to be able to solve someone's problem in 35 minutes, 45 minutes or whatever and completely have them walk away with a completely fixed problem. I think that completeness of care is wonderful. But if you put that aside, the thing that dentistry has given me is time. And I, and I don't think that I don't think that any other profession that I can think of really offers us that luxury. So what you choose to do with that time is really important. And I think it's very easy to get head down, bum up and just do dentistry. And whilst I think in your early years that's really important to cement um, foundations in clinical practice, I think it's important for us also not to get carried away with that and solely consume our time with clinical dentistry. I, I, I just think all these things that we that we consider to be life, we, we can sometimes sort of put to one side and, and, and get wound up in this rat race where we end up doing all these things for the sake of living our life which we never get to live and if we can somehow coalesce our ideal life with our dentistry life which is very very possible and lead a life where we are actually doing all the things we want to do and all the dentistry we want to do and give ourselves to our patients in our best version of ourselves that we can possibly give them I think the key there is that people need to really plan for that lifestyle balance or that that the goals that they want for their life. And dentistry allows us, like like you've said many times, to perhaps reduce clinical hours if if that's what we want. And to the ones that do want to do six days, well, they're they're a better person than me. I don't know if I, <laughs> I can do that. Um, I think COVID has also taught us that um, we can uh, slow down a little bit and enjoy life perhaps a little more, um, which is. Pretty wonderful. Tell us a bit about um, your thoughts around COVID-19, any advice for people out there who um, maybe they're graduates who have just started work or perhaps a little bit further along. Look, I'm a really positive person if you haven't gathered already, David. (laughs) Um, I'm really um, cognizant of not being insensitive to what COVID-19 has been, which has been an absolutely horrible 
um, pandemic that has kind of stifled the world in, in a way that we haven't seen for, you know, maybe 100 years kind of thing. Um, and so I want to couch that, what I'm about to say with that in mind, that it has been awful, it has been horrible, and people are understand, understanding of that. But if we're going to take positives away from it, let's take all the positives of the of the teachings and, and the kind of lessons that we've learned from this COVID-19 saga and the six weeks we've had in isolation or more and do all the things that we've already been doing that have made us happy and continue to, to, to take that into our life post-COVID, not take things for granted, be prudent. I'll use the word prudent with our money because in, with dentistry, you're obviously um, able to earn a nice income and that's great. But in the past, I think I, even I've probably been, um, if I can be um, sort of candid about it, even I've probably been a little bit frivolous with money in the past and, and maybe sort of thought, well, there's always a chance to earn money tomorrow, but we live for today, which is one way of looking at things. But I think now it's led to a little bit of conservatism with the way that we deal with finances. And I think that can only be a good thing. We've kind of become a society that's that's become addicted to have today and pay for it tomorrow, like, you know, buy today and, and pay to pay later. And I, and I think that... After pay. After pay, that's right. <laughs> um, but with regards to COVID-19 specifically, from a practicing point of view, I think the biggest thing that's going to come out of this saga is the renewed appreciation for human interaction. Patients will appreciate relationships more perhaps because we've had this experience of really struggling to have social interaction and the rest of it and those people who um, do spend the time with their patients and make connections it'll be more it'll be worth more perhaps in the future but you raise a good point about all the the positives the silver linings out of this very difficult situation and i think i agree we, we need to keep all of those in mind yeah and I, and I think the attitude needs to be um one of care and 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 wanting to really engage in that human experience because um, I think r- rather than sort of being opportunistic, I think as dental practitioners, we've got a real opportunity here to be as empathetic and show the care, concern and empathy that we mm. um, have always shown to our patients. And if we can continue to show that during this saga and after this saga, um, we'll build lifelong relationships with our patient. But the, the other thing I would say with, with COVID-19 is that from a dentistry sort of clinical perspective is it um, is going to allow us to, to have better infection control and continue to better better the profession. We already have such wonderful um, high standards of infection control across the board, but um, we can really be the bastions of, of light here or the leaders, pioneers in the medical field and across the, the globe um, in all fields in terms of just really providing uh, the guidance to for what good infection control is and what constitutes good clinical practice that is um, is something that is sustainable um, and, but also um, safe. Um, and uh, I think our p- patients more than ever will trust us and be looking forward to, to seeing their dental practitioners for that reason. It's it's it does highlight a lot of things um, for us in the profession. And I think yeah, like you said, there's a the making us think deeply about our infection control hopefully the standards are already very good but they should only get better from this which is really important let's um let's try to wrap this up a little bit i want to ask you a question um you've done a lot 
in your relatively short career, you've got a long career to go and I'm sure you'll do a lot more. Um, but do you think where you've got to in your practice ownership with um, working now pretty high up in the ADA, um, now teaching a course as well, is this luck or is this hard work or what's got you there? Uh, I think it's probably luck, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I, no, I think I, I think the biggest thing that I can, if I can instill on uh, upon people is is how important relationships are. Um, If you can build relationships, find the right mentors and and continually look to learn and better yourself, then opportunities will come your way. I like how you laugh and say, yeah, perhaps it's luck. But really, uh, one of my favorite sayings is we make our own luck. And I think um, it's very clearly hard work and, and relationships. That's a really fantastic point. Tell us about one of the hardest of struggles you've had the hardest struggle i've had is probably reconciling the fact that um i wasn't going to do medicine because i think for the longest time and i think a lot of dentists do um probably sort of feel the same way that i feel but the hardest thing for me is is was coming to terms with the fact that i wasn't going to do medicine and i think that has been a struggle that sort of probably led me to do um the masters of medicine, maybe in some way it's kind of fulfilling this kind of desire within me to kind of further my medical education in a way. Um, But it took me a long time to come to terms with that. And maybe only after really entering this masters of medicine program, maybe that's, that's sort of quelled that desire a little bit to want to pursue that any further because I'm really enjoying what I'm studying. But at the same time, I I don't feel like I have any further desire to do anything um, in the, in the sort of specific medical field. Um, and I'm quite satisfied with what I'm doing in dentistry and feeling like I'm able to the, to reap all the same rewards, satisfaction and and um, lifestyle that I, that I would have ever wanted. Uh, I think as dentists, we are um, physicians as much as we are surgical operators. Mm. And to that end, um, I think doing a master's um, in medicine is, is helping me be, become a better physician. Um, and, I, and I think... As, as diagnosticians or as um, clinicians that look to diagnose and treat a lot of the, a lot of the um, aspects of what we're actually treating are clinical illnesses and understanding those illnesses um, better um, and being able to um, diagnose and treat first before we decide if we even need to pick up a handpiece or a drill or not or a scalpel or whatever it is that you might pick up um, is, is really important and um, I I, I I speak to a lot of people who seem to share the same opinion that um, that we are physicians and that we need to respect that part of dentistry and what we do in educating our patients, um, talking them through treatment options, explaining treatment options to them, um, mm. and, and and really being a, a physician first and then an, and then an operator second. Do you think some people have lost their way in that regard? Um, look, I, I'd like to think not. But I, I think the way that um, that dentistry has gone, as far as what I've heard and what I've seen, is, and 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 what you hear people discussing, it, it's all about what you can do to get an output. So, what physical mm-hmm. um, treatments that you can offer? But the biggest treatment we can offer is our um, explanations, our guide, guidance, and really impressing upon patients the importance of prevention. Um, and I think it's a great practice builder too. I think this is something that, um, recent graduates probably need to really, really listen up, um, 
and think about because you are providing your patient the greatest value when you are looking after their greatest interest, which is their own health. Um, and this isn't some, um, you know, this isn't a, anything else other than a, a vehicle for you to educate your patients as best as, as you possibly can to help imbue them with the knowledge that you have. Um, and it, it, it makes for better informed consent. It b- makes for better acceptance in treatment plans. It makes for um, better treatment outcomes. And on the whole, everyone wins. And I think that physician first mentality is something that we really need to impress, impress upon um, not just students, but um, dentists across the board. I think that's a really good reminder. It is easy to, in a way, lose track of that like that key fact that's why we got into dentistry that's what we do is we we try to help people and 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 teach and prevent not just pick up a handpiece and do do work that's fantastic i want to leave it with one last question i always ask this and i want you to think about um, final year students and you can teach them one thing now we've talked a lot about relationships and i think that's like that's the number one thing for you for sure but let's let's think about one last tip for them you can teach every single graduate one thing, what would that be? If, you, if I could teach every single graduate one thing, I think it would be to, to find, to take the time to, to chase what they want rather than accept what they're given. Because it's, I think it's very easy. You feel like you're in a, in a, in a sort of, vulnerable junior position as a as a graduating dentist and you feel like you have to accept what's on the table but my answer to that would be don't look and even if you do initially accept what you're given continually look to find what you want because it's there it's out there and you get it it's (laughs) you did a whole course on it right (laughs) especially the graduating dentist really i think you do probably feel when you graduate that um, in, in some ways, a little powerless, or, or, or maybe just you just got to roll with the wave that comes uh, comes to you or that approaches you, and that's fine if you do that initially. I think we all have to sort of take cop our medicine at the start, but in the back of your mind, have that um, that life ambition, and I say life ambition, not professional ambition, because they're both um, so inextricably linked. Your, your, what you want your life to be and what your profession is or what you want your profession to be, they're not um, mutually exclusive. They're so interdependent. And so if you can think about what you want your life to look like, then you can chart your path towards that life and be uncompromisingly tough on yourself to make sure that you get there. I love that. That's definitely something I've got from our, our chat tonight is um, is – you in with dentistry we can do a lot we can do what we want we can balance our life and we can pursue all these different things i really commend you for everything you're doing i'm astounded to find out that you had two children in amongst all of this and i'm very impressed (laughs) because with one and i (laughs) um it's it's really impressive i want to thank you for everything to do with the ada um you're involved with filling the gap charity as well um we'll put some links up for that and the course you're doing for the UCIC grads i think is just fantastic um all the best with your masters and thank you so much for joining us on the dental head start podcast thanks cpd is expensive travel time away from work hotels it all adds up 
Imagine being able to see the content from world-renowned speakers from all over the globe. Learn about restorative, full mouth work, communication, surgery, and tons more, all from the comfort of your own home. No travel costs, no hotels. That all exists and is getting better every day on the RIPE Academy from Restoring Excellence. For just $29 US per month, you'll get access to some of the best online content and save thousands on the real-life course equivalents. In fact, if you look really closely, you'll actually see me on there. I paid thousands for that course. It was awesome and now it's just $29 US a month to see the same stuff. Find out more on the RIPE Dentistry Group or at restoringexcellence.com. I always find it so fascinating to learn the journeys people like Rowan have gone on to get to where they are and Rowan's someone who's really wearing a lot of different hats. He's making a big impact on the profession and he's someone um, uh, I admire. So, thank you Rowan for coming on the podcast, sharing your time with us and sharing all your tips. And I want to say thank you to Ripe Global and Dental Protection Limited. They both, of course, support the podcast. They also both provide a lot of amazing online content that we can learn from. And at times like COVID-19, when we were shut down, it's very strange, but we could still learn so much from these people. So thank you to both of them for their support. Let's get stuck into the Prime Head Start segment. This is also talking about COVID-19 and a little bit about how we can position ourselves best in the new dental landscape. Welcome to the Prime Head Start segment, proudly brought to you by Prime Practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Philip Palmer, the founder of Prime Practice. How are you today, Philip? I'm well. Thank you, David. It's nice to be here. Thank you again for coming in and doing this chat. Um, It's really useful, um, particularly in this time. Now, we're obviously recording this. We're just going from level three to level two restrictions. Um, Lots have changed since we first started the Prime Head Start segment. Um, How are you holding up in this time? Personally, I'm surprised. I thought I would be getting very uh, edgy and agitated um, (laughs) by now, but I'm actually enjoying it. I've been on a lot of webinars with a lot of people and a lot of people saying, I don't want to go back to work. I'm having a good time. (laughs) Other people, of course, most people are saying they do want to get back, but I'm surprised that the number is saying, no, this is great. It's interesting for us to find ourselves in this forced break and, it, you know, both both positives and negatives do come out of it. I know I've had more time for both the podcast and my family, which is a nice thing. Um, And what I want to talk about today is a little bit about this. We're going back to normality and I want you to, you know, share some of your thoughts about what this new normal will be like and what the changes we might see in dentistry post-COVID-19. Thanks, David. Look, I guess because I've been through an awful lot of I've been in dentistry for 50 years, so I guess it gives me a certain amount of perspective. (laughs) And if you look back over the 50 years, there's probably been some sort of major issue approximately somewhere between every 8 and 12 years. So if you go back in the 80s, there was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the end of the 80s, early 90s, there was the recession we had to have by Mm -hmm. Paul Keating. Mm -hmm. Then there was Mm -hmm. the the dot-com boom bust in the early 2000s, and there was the... 2008 GFC and each one of these had a problem and each one of these we did come out of each one of them and this too Mm. shall pass but we've never had a shutdown like this before so I believe this will change the psyche of the population much more than any of those did. I believe that um, dentists will be doing different work in a different way Uh, I don't mean they'll be doing different work. I I said different work, but what I mean is they'll be working differently. I think they'll probably for quite a while be working slower in the new normal. 
Um, I think there'll be, for quite a while, there'll be less demand for patients. I think we'll come back and there'll be some pent-up demand from the last month or two, but then that'll peter out and I dare say the work that goes on post that from principal dentists will be a little bit changed compared to before. I think it'll be a little bit quieter. There'll be possible it and again there'll be pockets of practices which are just mm-hmm. booming and there'll mm-hmm. be pockets of practices which really suffer. So yeah. I don't want to say every practice will be the same because that's never like that. I want to ask two questions about what you've just talked about. Um, and I think we'll get into a bit about um, how we can probably make the most of the situation. But um, you talked about working a bit slower. Are you referring more to the added infection control um, situation or other aspects? I, I am referring a lot to the infection control aspects. Also, what, making sure that at the beginning there'll be less patients in your reception area yeah. uh, because you want, don't want them to congregate there. That won't last a long time, but I am referring to infection control taking a little bit longer. Yeah, definitely. And then the other thing is that we probably will see a bit of pent-up demand over the next month or so, and so we're talking in May, and perhaps it might peter off. Is that a lot around the economic situation, or is there more to that? I think there's a little bit more to it. I think there'll be a change in the psychology, the market psychology, and the the way patients want treatment. Um, There's no question that the last several years there's been a boom in cosmetics and Mm -hmm. uh, people wanting to look good and they've been putting their hand in their pocket I have a feeling the market psychology will be that people will keep their hands in their pockets and not take them out quite so quickly to pay money for things that are discretionary and whether we like it or not most dentistry is discretionary yeah it's true, unless the patient's in pain. It's, it's exactly that, that will make. still they will still have that pain treated, but yeah. if dentists only were dealing with pain, I dare say it'd be five percent of our work, or ten yeah, percent. Th- I'm not being precise. I think we all um, learnt about that over the level three situation, and you're probably spot on. <laughs> so, um, considering the challenges and the headwinds perhaps ahead, um, what advice do you have for dentists? And I know you're going to talk a lot more about this in a, the Prime Vision Conference coming up, so there's a bit of material there. But um, just a few tips, perhaps, for particularly the younger dentists, the associate. Look, uh, and you're right. I am going to be talking in the uh, Prime Conference. The about what will be the effects on principal dentists, what will be the effects on associate dentists and hygienists, what will be the effect Mm. on practice values, and all of those will be affected. But Mm. there's no question in my mind that people who will be the least affected are the people who have strong relationships with their patients, who keep their patients coming in regularly every six months because of the because they are instilling in their patients the belief of the oral systemic connection, the belief that this is the only place they can get oral cancer screening, and all the different things that a dentist does to bring people back. If that's been done well for the last while, then those patients will keep coming, certainly much more than let me know if ever you need me again um, and letting the patient outside. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if if I expressed that terribly well, but... 
No, that makes a lot of sense. Having a, a bolstered recall or recare system, a system where patients come to you regularly and don't fall out the back door is critical. And something I think a lot of associates, young dentists and students um, probably don't think about because they haven't had to think about it from a business point of view. Um, but your patients come in either as new patients or, or recall patients and it's very easy to let the recall patients disappear. That's right. And the cost of acquiring new patients, the cost of marketing, the search engine optimization, the social media, the websites, the physical ads, whatever that cost is, you can keep it much less if you do a very good job of keeping of closing the back door as you called it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's fantastic advice, and I really look forward to you, you know your talk in the conference um, and all the information you give out um, through Prime Practice. And we really appreciate your time here on the Prime Head Start segment. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.